this is right, I'm not sure. Um, I'm not seeing Connie online. She, usually she comes out of home. She's okay. Um, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Um, I'm not holding on to things right now, but the last couple of days, um, you took leave of the disciples and asked them not to be afraid, um, that you would leave the spirit behind to carry on your work. Um, that's a great blessing for all of us. He asked the disciples to take joy in saying goodbye to him. Imagine that would not have been easy. Um, you left the spirit with all of us. Um, if you had remained yourself, it would have limited you in what you could do for all of us. But your call is to all of us, not just those physically close to you. The spirit isn't bound by those limitations. He's here and there, everywhere. Um, so you are present to us always, everywhere. Um, and that fact unites us with everyone everywhere. Um, what a great joy to be united like that with everybody on the earth and know that we're connected, even, even if we don't see the ties that connect us. So um, thank you, Lord, for the great gift of yourself and spirit for you. I ask um, your presence on all of us in the work that we're doing to strengthen us. Christ, you asked the disciples to be glad, to take the joy um, in saying goodbye. Um, knowing that the Spirit would uh, carry on with what you're doing. Um, so I ask for an increased joy in all that we do, particularly where there are sorrows or burdens. I ask for a special grace today on that um, group in close to San Antonio, I think, where a number of people were killed and some wounded, and it's another shooting. Um, sadly, they don't stop. Um, please um, surround our churches um, with your protection, um, particularly our church because it's targeted. People know that um, we oppose abortion. Um, um, it intensifies the, um, the anger in our church. And I ask for a special protection for schools, even with securities. Um, we're still not able to uh, prevent these mass slaughters. So these are our sins. This is our age. Um, pardon us all. Forgive us, please. We are part of a whole. We are connected to these killers. We are connected to the victims. Um, help us all. Strengthen us um, with a keen sense of our own sinfulness. Let it not make us despair or heavy or sad. Um, let it increase our joy um, in knowing that you brought a love to us in spite of our sins um, because of it. Help us to bring that same spirit to all that we do with each other, particularly where there's an evangelical call, where we're called to take you to other people. It's what we've been working on for some years now. So let a blessing be upon all that we do. Uh, watch over that school. Um, let your spirit be present. Um, um, 
Let it be an occasion for growing uh, in forgiveness and in justice both. We offer these prayers in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, okay, let's let's do let's pick up with the wreck and move just a few stanzas forward today. If you remember, we left off last week with that sailor rushing out to help the women, and he was tied to a mast. And the winds and the force of the waves took hold of him and threw him off, and he was described being dampened. You know, and it was a strange verb. And Hopkins is such a master of language, he knows what he's doing. Um, we've seen that over and over again in his poems. It's not an accident that he used that word. You know from the beginning that he's, the, the whole opening is about the struggle to, uh, to see God's purposes in life. Let me just take a second with this because you know that I don't want to stay on the poems, but just a second. One of the mysteries that he's dealing with is why God, this is so important, why God would have chosen the men he did to be disciples. Because choosing them, he knew that they were going to suffer. He knew that. He knew ahead of um, Peter's betrayal that Peter would betray him. He said before the cock crows three times. So, and I've tried to give a reading of that. That I, um, you know, we've gone back to that reading where he says, "Who they say I am?" And it's Peter who says, "You are the Christ." And we know that that insight came from the Spirit, from God, and that it was ratified. The taking of the auspices. It was confirmed. Taking of the auspices. Ask your mom what that means. Taking of the auspices mean you have to confirm an omen. Because in our imagination, we can go wild. We can make all sorts of claims that supernatural things are going on, and they may not. It just happens. But Christ ratified it. He said, you didn't come to that yourself. So Peter comes to that insight with God's help, and then Christ ratifies it. So, in that moment, he confers a great authority on Peter, both in seeing and insight and also authority. Because he said, I, I give you the kingdom. It's who you loose, you loose, who you bind, you bind. Um, and then he said, you'll betray me. Um, and I, my own sense of, is that he knew, and he knew how important it was that Peter do that, because until Peter saw his sins, until he carried the full weight of his own sinfulness, he would never be the Pope. So over and over again, we're reminded how important it is that there's a danger for all of us in thinking we're above other people because we're without sin and other people are. We're all in sin. Um, we're asked to put our sins away. The work of the church is to help free us. Um, so Hopkins is dealing with this, the mystery of God's selection. Why did he choose those 12 disciples? Because he had to know they would die. So there was a special grace being conferred on them in their suffering. It's absolutely crucial to see that. Why does God allow some people to suffer? Well, we, we know, if we take Boethius and our faith seriously, God does not cause suffering. He does not cause pain. He does not create evil. God does none of those things. He's good. But he allows things to happen in and he does it in a way that protects our free will. 
So he will come in and out. I mean, there's a mystery of how that unfolds. But our faith is he's always doing something to bring goodness out of evil. That's been a premise of ours for some time now. Why does he allow some people to suffer as a grace? Not a punishment, not a punishment, although it can evolve a punishment as a grace. There may be something punitive in it that those of us who suffer may feel that we deserve a punishment because of our sins. You know, I, I don't want, this is not a time for therapy, but there is a mystery there, okay? Hopkins is exploring it. He took vows as a priest, so he entered the priesthood. And we know from the opening that he entered into that with some terror, the sense of awe and dread of God, because God made him, he could undo him. That is, in some sense, he accepted a, a, a condition of absolute vulnerability. He let himself be in God's hands, trusting him. So whatever would happen. So he's dealing with that mystery now. Why did God allow these five women to suffer so unjustly as they did? It's the Boethius, it's the Job story again. Um, now remember, the backstory of this is uh, Bismarck, who was attempting to unify Germany at the time, um, was doing everything he can to purify the state. And he, he wanted to create, a, if I recall correctly, a, something along the lines of a welfare state and unify it. So he was a, um, a very Machiavellian statesman-like kind of politician in doing this. And one of his officers, I can't remember the title of his office, um, was given the authority to deal with specific aspects to purify it. The Catholics generally opposed socialism, and because they did, Bismarck wanted to get rid of them. So law by law by law, he gradually um, increased the difficulties for Catholics, took certain rights away, and until finally he closed the convents. So this was Bismarck's, it's really interesting to think about that because this predates Hitler. So in the century preceding Hitler, Bismarck was, always trying, was already trying to purify the German state, to bring that mentality. And at the end, the monasteries were closed, priests and nuns had to give up. They could either choose to put themselves under the state or leave. And these five nuns left. Um, and they were going to America where they um, had a, um, a convent waiting them. And you know that the storm takes them. So involved in this whole opening is often struggling with this question of, I can't put it any better. Why are some people allowed the grace of suffering? Or how much do any of us open ourselves to suffering because we believe Christ is in it somewhere? Because remember, justice, justice asks us to put a curb on wounds, injustices that cause wounds, right? We're supposed to say, no, don't do this anymore. It's not good. Because continuing to do this is going to lead to bad things. So we're asked to put a curb on things in justice, <clears throat> but we're asked to bring the love of Christ to how we do that, which means we make a place for suffering and the mystery of it because we don't always see into it. Now, I hope I muddled that sufficiently, because if you think about it, it's, it's a deep, deep mystery. Have I said that clearly? Is that clear? Okay. 
So we ended last week with this um, saber dangling, and Hopkins describes him in terms of being dandled, which is the word you use when you put a, a father puts a child on his knee and bounces him. He's dandled. So over and over and over again, he's created this sense that there is this extraordinary God who allows these things, but he's always looking out for us. So what very often seems to be very terrible to us and something we're encouraged to oppose or resist still involves a grace. Okay? Is that clear? What? Wait a minute, certainly I will. Remember this too, because remember the whole point of what we're doing as a group is to try to pull faith and reason together because faith without a reason is going to empty itself at some point. And a reason that doesn't have the support of faith will, will not be able to complete itself. Okay? And let me put that different. Wherever there's a mystery, let me put it this way. Wherever there's a mystery, there's always more to be known. And reason is the power by which we enter into those mysteries. We can see more and more deeply. Take reason away, we remain on this side of mysteries. Our faith calls us to bring both of those together. Wherever there's more to be known, or wherever there's a mystery, there's always more to be known because God is full intelligibility itself. He is meaning itself, he's life. So part of our work is to penetrate, to learn to know him. That's why John Paul began Fide Ratio saying, Christ the revealer. He revealed the kingdom, he revealed his father. If there was any mystery about the Father for the Jews before he came, there should have been no mystery afterwards. They saw the Father in him. They could have no doubts about his justice. They could have no doubts about his mercy or his love. Because Christ brought all of that to fulfillment. So in him, the mysteries of the kingdom were open. And he said to all of us, come follow me. Pick up your cross, follow me. Okay, so this is where we were in the sort of mystery that Hopkins is struggling with. Sorry, Mary. Oh, uh, if you saw the Father Stew movie, he said that his muscle disease was the best thing that ever happened to him. Yeah, can you all hear, did you, can you hear Bob? Can you say it louder, Mary? In the Father Stew movie, he got the muscle disease and he said it was the best thing that ever happened to him. Can you give his explanation? What he, what he, what he, <clears> he said it made him the man that he was. He, it did not stop him from wanting to be a priest and pursuing it with all his heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he probably was a, I get, he was a better person because of it. Yeah, 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 yeah. He was pretty raunchy in the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> he was? Yeah. Did you see it? Wow. Yeah, so, sorry. No, no, don't, I'm, don't be. Let's see, how much should I charge this guy? Every other word was an apple. You tell him, anybody who comes back, there he is. Anybody who comes back in the class has to pay. Chuck. He was a pretty rough guy in the beginning, right? He was a rough guy. Okay, wreck of the Dutchman. Let's go back. Remember, the man is dandling in their. They're 
Um, Hopkins is describing um, the nuns fighting until this one nun who's described as a lioness in, in stanza 17, till the lioness arose, breasting the babble, a prophetess toward towered in the tumult the virginal tongue told. And Hopkins would play on words like that, towered, told, because you know that very often there's a bell in a tower that tells, often tolling for death. Uh, now, 18, let me pick up here, because this to me is an extraordinary stand. Let's pick up here and I'll read just a few. 18, I'm touched in your power of bone, are you? Turn for an exquisite smart, have you? Make words break from me here all alone, do you? Mother of being in me, heart. Oh, unteachably after evil, but uttering truth. Why tears? Is it tears? Such a melting, a madrigal start? Never eldering revel in river of youth. What can it be, this glee, the good you have there of your own? I want to come back to this in a second. Sister, a sister calling, a master, her master and mine, and the inboard seas run swirling and hauling. The rash smarts, slaughtering brine, blinds her. But she that weather sees one thing, one, has one fetch in her, one last fetch. She rears herself to divine ears and the call of the tall nun to the men in the tops and the tackle rode over the storms brawling. Hear the power of that line. With everything, the, the, the salty brine of the, you know, washing over here, blinding her, knocking her down. She was the first of a five and came of a coy sisterhood. O Dutchlin, double a desperate name, O worldwide of its good. But Gertrude, Lily, and Luther are two of a town, Christ Lily and Beast of the Waste Wood. From life's dawn it is drawn down, Abel is Cain's brother, and breasts they have sucked the same. Loath for a love men knew in them, banned by the land of their birth, Rhine refused them, Thames would ruin them. Surf, snow, river, and earth gnashed. But thou art above, thou orient of light, by unchanceling, remember um, uh, Bismarck was the chancellor. So, he, and you know what, the chancel is a room and it's an area set off in a church as well. So it, again, it has that sort of double meaning. By unchanceling, poisoning palms were weighing the word, thou martyr master. In thy sight, storm flakes were scrolly flowers, lily showers, sweet heaven was a strewn. Five, the finding in Satan, in cipher, suffering Christ. I don't know if you're familiar, but five was an important number in the Middle Ages because it, it often referred to the five wounds of Christ um, and, and the stigmata. Um, mark, the mark is of man's make and the word of it sacrificed. But he scores it in scarlet himself and his own bespoken before time taken. Dearest prize and price, stigma, signal, sank foil taken for lettering of the lamb's fleece, ruddying of the rose flake. <laughs> that Christ as the Son of God could have taken on human nature. Suzanne's got a tweak in her ligament. I've got a hold on my foot. All of us are susceptible to these physical wounds. Um, that this glorious thing that God gave us could bear the stamp of such violence. 
The forward time taken, dears prized, and prized stigma signal, sank foil taken, for lettering of the lamb's fleece, ruddying of the rose flight. Joy fall to thee, Father Francis, drawn to the life that died, with the gnarls of the nails in thee, niche of the lance, his lovescape crucified, and seal of his seraph arrival. He's referring to um, Francis reaching that point in his life where he meditated on the wounds of Christ so intensely that he was given a stigmata. I don't know if you know about Francis, but he received the stigmata, bore them on his body. And five lived and leave favor and pride are sisterly sealed in wild waters to bathe in his fall gold mercies to breathe in his all fire glances. I hope you're catching the oxymorons that he's pulling two opposites together, joy and pain, because they can't be separated in Christ. Or Paul, over and over again, Paul says, I take joy in the sufferings for you, you know, because he wanted to give people that love. For somebody else. Lori, tell that husband of yours to say good. Um, one last stanza. So he, he says, Joy fall to thee, Francis, and then 24. Away in the lovable west on a pastoral forehead of Wales, I was under a roof here, I was at rest, and they the prey of the gales. She to the black about air, to the breaker, the thickly falling flakes, to the throng that catches and quails, was calling, O Christ, Christ, come quickly. Those are words that were recorded of her during the storm. The cross to her she calls, Christ to her, christens her wild worst best. It'll go on, I'm gonna stop it. The majesty, what did she mean? In the next few stanzas, he's gonna ask this question. What in the world was going on in her in the midst of a storm when she's going out to help people and the sailor who rushed to help her is dangling from, you know, being tossed around, knocked about. What did she mean when she called out in the next couple of stanzas? To me are some of the most extraordinary. We'll have to wait on it. I'm giving a quiz. Um, but that question, what did she mean, is the question that he's going to ask. Now let me go back just to touch on a couple of things before we put this down, because some of this is really difficult, I know. She runs out to hell, and in stanza 18, I'm, I'm going to put this to you guys, okay? He says, describe, now, remember, he read this in a report in, in the newspaper. He was so moved by it, I think it probably put him close to tears. He was so moved that he wanted to write this poem. This the opening is about his own struggles. We've seen that, um, because in some ways, the story so moved him that he identified with the struggle as a priest. And he's just described this woman coming out and being tossed about and this man being buffeted about in the storm. And he says, ah, touched in your bower of bone, are you? Turned for an exquisite smart, have you? Made words break from me here all alone, do you? Mother of being in me, heart, oh, unteachably after evil, but uttering truth. Why tears? Is it T 
tears, such a melting, a mandrical start. Never eldering revel and river of youth. What can it be, this glee, the good you have there of your own? And he goes back to the sisters again. What is he saying in stanza 18? Uh, touched in your bower bone, are you? Turned for an exquisite smart, have you? Make words, do you mother of being in me heart go unteachably after evil? What's the saying? Melody, you look like you're, do you have a thought? Talking about her or him, uh, touched in your bower bone, are you turned for an exquisite smart? Have you make words break from me? He's talking about himself. What's going on in the stanza? What's he saying? And 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 oh, unteachably after evil, but uttering truth. Mother of being in me. Heart. In other words, something is driving him that's there. A mother. I think he's facing a danger here in himself as a poet. Have none of you ever had an experience where, um, uh, go ahead. I was going to say, it's, it's almost like he knows something is welling up inside of him that he's about to express and he doesn't want, he's like, he's almost resistant to it because he's talking about um, turned for an exquisite smart. And I think in that case, he means smart as in pain, like to smart someone, like a, like to hit them, like it's hitting him and it's, it's touching his heart, but in a way that makes him feel pain. We come at this have any of you ever not had this experience or know somebody, I mean, I'm assuming all of you, when you saw something so clearly and you knew how smart you were, but instead of focusing on whatever it is you're focusing on, you're focused on how smart you are, that you see that. But none of you had that experience. We're in our... In this... No. Okay. Bad rhetorical question, how's that? But instead of, instead of 
our mind focusing on something in our pride, we're making our own smart the object of ourselves. If that's true of the mind, it can it not be also true of the heart, where love is more at stake. That in a moment when you feel something, you go, oh, how exquisite that you feel that. He is really scorning himself right here because he's, he's presented this as so finely, but he's also aware of a danger to himself. So he's going, oh, see how feelingly you feel or how exquisitely you feel? It's a little bit comparable yeah. to somebody realizing how smart they are, except this has to do with the heart. Pity or feeling or the sensitivity to something, where your focus, where the feelings should draw you to somebody, but instead of doing that, you become so involved in it that you're, you and your own pride. Let me read it again now and see if you hear it in that sense, because there's a real self-scorn here. He's just begun to describe her and her heroine. Ah, so you've been touched by this, have you? you know, you're, you're so sensitive? Have none, I can't, none of you heard, you're so sensitive that you can feel this way? Ah, uh, touched in your bower of bone, are you? Turned for an exquisite smart, have you? That you're going to do all these things. Do you see he's clearing the path for himself as a poet? He cannot let his feelings or his pride in them keep him from doing this because that's a right. date, like somebody who's smart, who lets his intelligence get in the way. Here it's his heart. Turn for an exquisite smart, have you? Made words break from me here all alone, do you? Mother of being in me, heart. Because it's in our heart that we, we know that. I mean, this is certainly what I've been pressing. The great task for us is to order our emotions. Because our pity is, a, we saw that in Donnie. One of the greatest temptations for us is pity. Pity is a natural emotion. But it's also an enabling emotion. It's in that that we get stuck with enabling. The, the great task is to learn to make our hearts ordinate. St. Augustine's Ordo Amoris. To make our emotions lawful, ordinate. Remember we went through this life. Ordinate to what? To ourself, to human law, to divine law. To, to what do we appeal to make our emotions ordinate? Mother of being in me, heart, oh, unteachably after evil, but uttering truth. Why tears? Is it tears? Such a melting, a madrigal start? Because he's writing a madrigal. It's a song right. to this woman. It's a poem. Never eldering revel in river of youth. What can it be, this glee, the good you have there of your own? The pride we take sometimes in what we're doing that sometimes gets in the way. So, again... What he's, the poem that he's doing involves him in his awareness in his own struggles with the struggles of the nuns, and particularly this one woman. Sister, a sister calling, a master, her master and mine. Uh, he goes on, blinds her. She appeals to everything. Then he says, she was the first of a five and came of a close sisterhood. Odutschland, Double a desperate name, O worldwide, of its good. But Gertrude, who was a saint, Lily and Luther are two of a town. Christ, Lily and beast of the waste wood. From life's dawn it is drawn down. Abel is Cain's brother, and breast they have sucked the same. What does Deutschland mean? If anybody knows German. Germany? It means German. Sorry? 
Yeah, it means Deutschland, but it means Germany. The literal translation of it, does anybody know? And it's, huh? No, you're no. It's, I mean, you're you're right on to something. It also means of the people. That's what it means, literally, of the people. What is he saying here? A ship named the Deutschland, which also means Germany, Deutschland, Germany, or of the people, is going down. Um, Gertrude and Luther came from the same village are two of a town, Christ Lily and Beast of the Waste Wood. One created a schism in the church, one went to sainthood. Abel is Cain's brother, and breasts they have sucked the same. They both came from the same mother. One went bad, one went good. Was martyred, as a matter of fact. Right? Abel's the first martyr. The ship is named Duchle. What's the irony that I think he's developing in this stanza? When you think of a ship of state, and this is the Germany, it's going yeah. um, by, by um, confiscating the properties, taking away, and putting Catholics in a position of having to either choose the state or be exiled, he's saying Germany undid itself. It actually undid its own national character. And remember what I said earlier. This is Bismarck trying to purify Germany. This precedes Hitler by a generation. Right. And Hopkins is writing this. Is that clear? Oh, Deutschland double a desperate name, oh, worldwide of its good. Wide of its good. It missed. It took away the rights of these people because of their religious beliefs. And five sisters perished. So this question, why does God allow, why does God allow the grace of suffering? In what way is the suffering of any of us meant to be a grace? I hope you hear me, I'm not advocating suffering. If there's anybody in this room that doesn't like suffering, it's certainly me. But, um, but there is this aspect of suffering that's in our faith. Let me stop here. Any questions or comments on the, remember the next few stanzas, Hopkins gonna deal with this question. Why did she, what did she mean when she said Christ come? What was she saying in that moment? So this is part of his struggle as a poet because in poetry, we're taking back to that moment when the sisters went down, when the Dutchman went down, we're also taken into his interior struggles as a poet, struggling to make this real. Is that clear? I think Chuck might do something. Sorry? I think Chuck might do something. Um, anybody, Kay or David or, or, did Chuck disappear again? Warrior. You guys are available. Any of you guys have a comment or a question on this? Please jump in. I miss you guys. No? Hey, I do not believe you don't have a question.
You what? what? I want to answer the question. Of what, what she means? Suffering. Oh. You could, if you could just do that shortly, all of us would be glad to hear it, I'm sure. Well, I mean, for, so for others to suffer, I mean, that's, it's, it's for all around to, to learn from it. Because if we're not, then, then we wouldn't be turning to God. We would be running our own circus. Yeah. All about the monkeys. That question really pops up. I just had a friend's wife. Bob, can you speak up? Because I'm yeah. not sure. Can you speak up? Yeah, I had a friend. His wife went through pancreatic cancer. He watched all that. He was he was pretty concerned about why is this happening? Why? What's the benefit? Right. Yep. So we all go through that. Because he's struggling to try to portray that. Let's give us a reason why. I don't know why. Yeah. Remember, I think it was last week or a couple of weeks ago, I gave you the definition of suffering, sefere, from the Latin and I think Anglo-Saxon. It means to bear up, and it, it, has, it, has, it relates to the word fertile. That's, that's what suffering means, to carry up, to bear, to be fertile, to bring forth. Here, let me, let me put it this way too, and it goes, I think, to Mary's point. When we suffer, and I don't think any of us, certainly not me, I mean, I, um, I don't want to encourage suffering, I don't like it, uh, but I mean, I, I think I can pretty safely say in my life where I find somebody doing something unjustly to somebody, I generally step forward. Um, I mean, there's no one that does like suffering. That's yeah, the thing, well, that's what I mean, that yeah. we all have to kind of go, it's humility, we all have to go through it to find Bob, God, right? sorry, can you let those people in? I think they're trying to get in can. Um, let me put it this way, too. Before we suffer, we look at the world in a certain way. I mean, it's just picking up what you're saying. Before we suffer, we look at the world in a certain way. After we suffer, um, we look at the world differently. We don't see things the same. When you're a child, what do we know when we're children? You know, we just don't, the older, I mean, I, I look at my, myself 20 years ago and think I was a pretty serious teacher. I've been a serious teacher most of my life. But I certainly don't see things now the way I did then, you know. And suffering's played a part in it. When we suffer something, it changes the way we see and it changes the way we feel towards things. So with each thing we suffer, a new birth of consciousness takes place in us. We're not the same person. It's like a renewal, a recreation. Something new comes in. So the, the word suffering, the, the connection with um, to bear up, to bear, and to fructify, to be fertile, is really appropriate. Out of that comes a new sense of consciousness, a new awareness, hopefully, that we carry into what we do in the world. Um, Let me stop here. Go ahead, Mary. Go ahead. Again, I'm the gardener, and I always go to nature. Suffering, to me, is a kind of pruning. If you have these big bushes, and you take your shears and prune it like this all over, new growth will happen at the point you pruned it. 
but if you want the bush to fill out, you prune it at the base and then new. So to me, suffering is a kind of pruning. Maybe God's taking some, <laughs> allowing something to be taken away. Thank God. For your benefit. Yeah. Yeah. But you have to embrace that. Having those things taken And not away. go into pity like you said. Yeah, yeah. Or resentment. Resentment. Yeah, grudges are great. Right. Yeah. Or turning away from him or. Right. The doctor. The big doctor. Let's stop, okay? Because I want to get to Regensburg. And, um, I'm going to get us out on time. A couple of things. Um, just to remind you of important, wait, a couple of things in a quick review. When Suzanne and I were leaving last week, she was, I asked her about her thoughts on the class and she thought that one of the, one of the virtues of what happened last week is that as we talked about it and came to our conclusions, her way of describing it was to say, this effort to reconcile faith and reason, to, to take our faith and reason to other people when they oppose it, that it's not easy to do. You know, that's where we, I mean, we put most of our, our time there. The difficulties, we went through different arguments. I've tried to cover almost every one of the disorders that I could think of in our age. So you should be a little bit prepared to face some of these things, to understand what's going on in yourself and others. Um, but her comment was that she thought one of the one of the valuable outcomes was to, that we could see that it was doable, that we could actually do these things. It's not, um, you know, um, John Paul is very clear. We have to be able to conceptualize what we're talking about, to understand it with our minds. We have to find a language with which to bring it to people, otherwise we can't take it. Those are clear, yeah? We have, how can we take something if we're in a muddle? We just pass on a muddle to somebody else. We've got to see more clearly what it is we're dealing with. Be able to go to principles, first principles, and have a discussion. And it should be possible to do that with a better spirit because we're asked to bring love and hope and faith. You know. And I gave as examples um, what to me illustrate the point. A number of examples where something happened to somebody. I gave the example of close friends of ours who's last daughter moved in with somebody for eight years. And the young man that she stayed with for eight years came and asked for the help. You know, what, I mean, what can you do at that point? When you're up against something you can't change, so reason has done its work, faith has done its work, but it's at that point where your faith comes in more seriously because at that point you pray. Somebody, I think it was Connie gave the example of uh, Monica with her husband and with St. Augustine. Um, we, and I want to, I've been trying to stress this, I just cannot stress this enough. We live in a world in which we're encouraged to believe that happiness means freedom from suffering. Having everything your own way, having all you want, all the possessions you want, if you have all the, it's a me too. Have this, have this, have this. It's a consumerist world. And, I, and I'm gonna send you an article that. It, published. The argument that I'm making is it's inimical to love. In this world, we're on a conveyor belt. It wants to answer desires and it creates a condition where we keep desiring things. 
It's a, it's, a, it's a proliferation of means without ends. Do we believe, as a political ideal or a cultural ideal, that all of our desires will ultimately be satisfied in the world? We don't. Catholics, I mean, we believe that I mean, we've got a struggle. That's a martyrdom. We're in a consumerist world. It keeps producing things to keep feeding desires so that we will want more and more and more and more. So we're on a conveyor belt. We proliferate means without any sense of ends. I'm saying that's inimical to love because love is an end in itself. We don't do it for rewards. We don't do it expecting to get something back. We do it in love. Yeah? Um, so, um, what we were talking about is that it's doable. Does that mean it's easy? No, it doesn't. In our culture, it seems to me it's got to be very, very, very difficult. Um, but our faith is, and will we be tested? Obviously, we will. If we don't get results right away, do we stop in discouragement or despair? We're asked not to, we're asked to hope. So the couple that were close friends, the daughter didn't come until eight years later. I don't know how long Monica had to pray for her husband or St. Augustine. So suffering is a part of the love we bring to our experiences. I don't think we're meant to encourage it or enable. I just do not believe in enabling. Um, we have to say no, we have to set curbs, but it means also it's important um, to bring Christ's love to what we do. You all know that. The other thing that I wanted to just reinforce tonight, looking back, is that it seems to me, if we look at what we've been talking about, that um, uh, Fide Orazio and Regensburg, and certainly we'll encounter this in C.S. Lewis and Orthodoxy, that what we're struggling for is an orthodoxy. There is an orthodoxy. There's a center to our faith. I hope it's clear by now. The more we move off to extremes, in our heads or in our emotions, the farther away we get from that center. The closer we get to that center, the closer we are to a cross. That's Aristotle's mean. That's where we become virtuous. That's also where we most encounter the cross. But the whole point of this is that there is, there is a real, there is a principle, there is something to strive for. Mod, John Paul said again and again, the modern world takes all that away. It says there's no meaning to life, there's no certainties, you can't hold on to these things, and it leaves everybody confused or fighting for the wrong thing. There is an orthodoxy, there is a relationship between faith and reason that is peculiar to our church and it asks that we struggle to live it. As we do, the closer we get to that center, the better we become, the greater our joys. That's sort of the underlying argument of what we've been saying. Okay. We've talked about this in a number of ways. I've used the um, image of the still point from Boethius and also from our poetry. Um, Benedict's going to introduce the word logos. Um, remember the, some of the important terms we've had. Ordo amoris is ordinate emotions, that the great task for us is to make our emotions lawful, ordinate, according to what? According to God's law, not our own. Um, and anima naturalite Christiana 
is the natural Christian soul. That's a word from our church fathers. Anima naturalite Christiana. The naturally, the naturally Christian soul. We are made, all of us, in God's image. Christ is imprinted in every single one of us. The world says no. The struggle, we wound that image, yes? We wound it constantly. But we struggle to make that real. Remember Hopkins' poem, everything speaks itself. Everything speaks Christ. He made everything, he's present in some way. Each one of us is a unique individual, absolutely unique, and yet we're all united by virtue of that one thing. That's what unites us. We have the same creator, Christ. So he's present in all of us. Okay, just a quick, let's look at um, Regensburg. Remember, it begins with um, Pope Benedict addressing this audience. It's an academic audience, and he's recalling fondly the days when he was teaching there. Um, and um, he, he wants to address what is more immediately an academic issue, because he taught at a university in which it was understood that there was a logos to the world. Now, this is absolutely central to everything we're talking about. So even though I'm putting it in an academic setting, you ought to be able to expand outward with it. He taught at a time when it was assumed that there was a logos. Otherwise, how could they have had the colloquium? Either they had reason in common and could speak to each other, or they'd be talking past each other. It would have been a futile exercise, right? There was a common principle. There was a first principle. If you, can't, if you can't get to a first principle, you will not be able to talk with each other. You'll talk past each other. So he's recalling that fondly, but he's lamenting the fact that it's gone. That that sense of a logos has disappeared from the modern academic life and the modern world in general. There is no longer the sense of a logos. Okay. Um, and um, he addresses it um, in two ways, in looking at um, Islam, because the Logos does not exist in Islam, and at fundamental Christianity, because fundamentalism denies the Logos too. Remember, to the fundamentalists, um, the consequences of the fall were complete. Man became depraved. So he can't share a Logos. Na nature is depraved. It's got an, e an inherent evil in it. There's no Logos that good. So he raises this question because it was at the heart of this dialogue between the emperor back then and when um, Constantinople was under attack between the years of 1394 and 1402. And remember the emperor said to the um, Islamic scholar, this, uh, this very bright, faithful Muslim, what did Muhammad bring that was new? Because remember, there are three ways. Old Testament, the law, the New Testament, reconciliation of the law and love, and the Quran. And he makes the point that the Quran adds nothing new, that everything that needed to be said was said in the Old Testament and the New. That, that's the thrust of John Paul's book. 
Christ the Revealer. Everything that was needed to be known has now been revealed to us. The kingdom is laid open. Everything we need to know about the law, everything we need to know about fulfilling the law, everything we need to know about love or mercy, it's all there. It's been given to us. That's our inheritance. Okay. So he's arguing that um, Islam is bringing something very different. And he says in page 2, show me what Muhammad brought that was new, and here you'll find things only evil and inhuman, such as his command to spread the sword by faith. Now the question becomes then, if you have a faith, can you legitimately spread it by violence? Because there is that element in the Quran. God, he says, is not pleased by blood and not acting reasonably. It's contrary to God's nature. Faith is born of the soul, not the body. Whoever would lead someone to faith needs the ability to speak well and to reason properly without violence and threats. What are we working? To get clear conceptually and to understand what it is we believe and to find a language with which to bring it to somebody else. To convince a reasonable soul one does not need a strong arm or weapons of any kind or any other means of threatening a person with death. down a few lines. Um, he's arguing that what the Quran is offering is in some ways contrary to God's nature. He says, for the emperor as a Byzantine shape by Greek philosophy, the statement is self-evident. For Muslim teaching, God is absolutely transcendent. His will is not bound up with any of our categories, even that of rationality. But down where it's God's will, we would even have to practice idolatry. Whatever God does, I mean, Allah, he can change his mind and one would be left to do it. So he's arguing that um, Christianity brought something original and what was essential to the spread of Christianity, to the spread, was the Hellenic world, the Greek-Roman world. And I forgot to bring Fide Ratio, but you remember that line, I, I underscored it when we looked at it, where um, John Paul said, it's absolutely crucial to be open to every culture. We're called to go out to evangelize. But it's absolutely crucial that we never lose contact with that Greco-Roman world. That was a fundamental point. Because the modern world, in its pluralism, says the only real stance towards improving culture is to be open to everybody. Let people have their differences. The, what's wrong with that is some cultures are corrupt practice infanticide or, you know, I mean, there's lots of things that culture, um, um, racial cleansing, I mean, all sorts of things go on in cultures. But the assumption of pluralism is honor our differences. John Paul is saying, yes, we should, but it's also important to hold on to that Greco-Roman heritage because that heritage was the first one to give us a sense of universals. And that was absolutely crucial to the spread of Christianity because Christ came for everybody. So he said that Greek world was absolutely essential. And it's interesting, he says on page three, in the beginning was the logos. This is the very word used by the emperor. God acts soon logos, with logos. Logos means both reason and word. The reason which is creative and capable of self-communication. Remember, those of you who've been with me now for a while, the word epic, epos, 
means a word, a creative word, a divine word. It's close to the Logos. It's what an epic is. It's the God speaking. Remember, Homer begins, sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus. It's all about the honor of the man. But it's a song sung by the god, the goddess. Homer is just the instrument. Sing, goddess, the anger of Peleus. All the Odyssey the same way, the Aeneid the same way. So the God, God speaks through words. Epic, logos, means word, a logos, reason. There's some transcendent reality being spoken through words. So the beginning of John's Gospel is, in the beginning was the logos. I love this. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos is God, says the evangelist. The encounter between biblical message and Greek thought did not happen by chance. The vision of St. Paul who saw the roads to Asia barred in a dream, and in a dream saw a Macedonian man plead with him, come over to Macedonia and help him. This vision could be interpreted as a distillation of the intrinsic necessity of a rapprochement between biblical faith and Greek inquiry. That faith and reason are brought together in Paul's efforts. That's implied in that vision, and you also know it was, in, it was made explicit in that visit to uh, Athens that John Paul refers to. Remember when he went to Athens and he walked around the city to learn its ways and saw, you all, there's this statue to the unknown God, and he wants to tell them who that unknown God is. So he's saying it's absolutely crucial to hold on to this heritage and not let go of it because it's, it supports our faith more directly than any other culture could. Because lots of cultures are anti-universal, anti-logos, anti-Christ. Page four, this inner rapprochement between biblical faith and Greek philosophy, philosophical inquiry, was an event of decisive importance, not only from the standpoint of history of religions, but also from that of world history. So down, we can also express this the other way around. This convergence with the subsequent addition of the Roman heritage created Europe and remains the foundation of what can rightly be called Europe. The thesis that the critically purified Greek heritage forms an integral part of Christian faith has been countered by a call for a de-Hellenization of Christianity. Viewed more closely, three stages can be observed in this process of de-Hellenizing our faith, and he will give it here. Um, let me just, for a second, Benedict is arguing a, a number of things here. One, he's saying it's impossible to separate our faith from that Hellenic world because it came through Greek translations. So it's, from the very beginning, it, it embodied a spirit that was Greek, just in that fact. Stop and think about that. The faith was taken outside of that culture and spread to other cultures. It was transmitted, translated. It crossed barriers, it went out, right? So the very act itself was expressing a view that came out of Athens. This, this view of a democracy that all men are created equal, so that that was the first democracy, so that people coming from other cultures could come into that world 
and enjoy the freedom that they would not enjoy in Egypt or Babylon or wherever they came from. Yeah? So the very notion implies this Greek world that there was something universal. That the, the Greek philosophy came to see that there were these universals. All men are created equal. There's a God. There's a, a logos to the world. There's a rationality to the world. Two other quick ways. Plato argued, and I don't want to get into philosophy here. Plato argued um, that we can't have real knowledge of things in our bodies, a chair, Michael, a mic, Suzanne, all of us. And I see my senses, right? You're looking at me, I'm, you're, you're not an angel, you're not, you've got a body. That our grasp of things and our ability to see how they relate um, makes up our knowledge. We don't have true knowledge, according to Plato, until we see the form of a thing. And those forms, according to Plato, exist in an eternal world. There's faults with that, and I don't want to go into them right now. But, but let me try to make that clear. So, um, how do we know that all trees are trees? Because um, do all, and dogs, bears, do all bears, can they distinguish one tree from another? Or, or come to the idea, do bears have the idea of tree in their minds? They do not. They may know something instinctively with their senses, but they cannot grasp the form of thing. So it's by the form of a, of a um, lion that I know lions. It's by the form of a man that I can know a man and distinguish him from a lion. Or a man and an animal from a tree, or one kind of tree from another. So the, the mind can grasp the forms. The fact that they all have the same form in common implies another order the forms themselves. Otherwise, how did all these particular trees, or lions, or men, exist? Plato's argument is they all participate in these forms, these eternal forms. And his argument about that is um, what distinguishes those forms in their eternal life is their goodness. So the ultimate source of everything, in everything in the world, this is an argument that he makes, an argument, is the good. We've said this before, bonum es diffusivum. Goodness is diffusive of itself. Sui. Bonum es diffusivum sui. Goodness is diffusive of itself. Goodness is everywhere in the world. And it couldn't exist in all these things unless it had a common source. So there's a philosophical idea that came out of Greece that already hinted at Christianity. What's the ultimate source of it? It's a good God. Aristotle said that all things have their ultimate explanation in God, what he called an unmoved mover. Okay, he said every, this is his argument, we've gone through it before, every, everything that takes place in nature, everything that exists in nature has the quality of contingency. It's susceptible to things. You can fall and twist a knee. You can have an ulcer in your foot. You can, you know, uh, whatever can happen to us. The car can crash into you. You can die. You can, you can get a, a fatal form of cancer. Yeah? So everything in the world is, is, has an aspect of contingency to it. It's dependent on something else. Something happens to it. It'll affect what goes on. He said that you can't explain things 
in terms of contingency, because if you do, you keep going back and you'll end up in a process that goes on forever. One thing explaining another, right? If you, it's like a pool ball set in motion by something, you have to go to another pool ball before that. So everything in nature is explained by some prior contingency. So in that sense, chance, contingencies, does not explain things. It just puts you in a infinite regression. It's only when you come to something that's uncontingent, that has a being in itself, that doesn't depend on something else, that you finally get an explanation for everything in the world. Is that clear? So both Plato and Aristotle, from different perspectives, gave argument, philosophical arguments that helped us understand existence that pointed to Christ before he came. That's one of the marvels of Plato and Aristotle. And we saw that in other ways. We saw it in the Iliad, the Odyssey, we saw it in Sophocles. We've seen it in a number of ways in the readings that we've done. So everybody following. <coughs> So the Greek heritage was absolutely crucial because in one sense it helped us understand men of any culture. That, so Aristotle's ethics, man's capable of becoming virtuous. To do that he has to identify the extremes of his temper, his inclinations, and work with them. If, you're, if you tend to be cowardly, What's the answer? What do you do? You just accept your cowardice and die that way? No, you, you, you try to do things that put you at risk in order to learn to be braver. Yeah? If you're stingy with your money, what do you do? You try to be more careful. So, um, most of us are given to extremes, that's the way we begin. But our life can be improved if we work at being virtuous, the mean. That applies to men whatever culture they live in, whether they're in Egypt or Africa or China, it doesn't matter, it's a universal truth. Is everybody following? So there were all these elements in this Greek world that were philosophic in the sense that they were universal, they could apply everywhere. Even the translating of the Bible was an act of that, that, that something could be taken out to help others become better. So he's saying there is this effort underway in the modern world in the name of pluralism or diversity to just leave people where they are. The Christian is asked not to let that be, but we're asked not to take bombs or take a bat or, but we are asked to understand our faith conceptually, to take it out and present it in a way that somebody can hear, to make arguments, because people are going to meet us with arguments. But what's essential to that is this Greek, Hellenic, Roman world. Okay, now let me stop here before I finish up here. Does everybody, anybody have questions about why this, is, this notion of the Logos is so important? It exists in nature. All sciences imply it. Sciences are attempting to discover a law in nature. And they can only talk to each other from one discipline to another across disciplines because they share this notion of a logos, that there's this rationality. Otherwise, how could a science, how could a science in biology talk to a science in physicists or anatomy or? They all either have a common understanding of norms or laws in nature, or they wouldn't be doing what they're doing, and they couldn't talk and learn from each other. 
That's why Benedict is grieving at the beginning, because he says, when I was here, that's a notion we all share. We don't anymore. So he's saying it's crucial to recover that notion, otherwise we cannot talk with each other. Okay? You have a heavy responsibility. Um, good, yeah, Mike. I struggled with this idea of uh, logos in the way that Benedict is referring to it as a, uh, a divine, as a reason, a, a presence of a, of a reason, a reasonability. Because I always prefer, I always think back to Christ. I think logos, I think of Christ. Yeah. So, Okay, what's the problem with the two of those? Because what's the problem there? If Christ is the Logos, he's present in everything you're describing. So the yes. Logos is present everywhere in the world. So we're speaking of the Logos as if it's the body of the spiritual body of Christ among, among in our material world. all creatures, the, 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 the yeah. all creation. All, yeah, yeah, all of it. There's nothing in creation that doesn't have rationality. That is not into everything in nature is intelligible. It has a meaning. The poems we've been reading of Hopkins, the wind, the um, kingfishers catch fire. I'll read it again next week. Everything in nature has intelligibility. We talked about the stone. You know, the stones have meaning, or everything means. Do we have the eyes to see it? And if you deny meaning, and if some people do, that there's no meaning to anything in the world, I mean, you've got to find some ground in which to meet that person. But everything means because Christ was the creator of it all. He's the word in the beginning he was. He was the means of creation. The image of Christ is imprinted everywhere. If you look at anything in the world, it can be a leaf, it can be a sea anemone, it could be underwater algae, however primitive the form. If you look at everything in nature, it has some form where you couldn't distinguish that thing from something else. It would just be water. That's why death by water is so important, because it seems to take away all form, you know, you die. But everything in nature has form, or we couldn't talk about it. The most primitive kinds of underwater sea life, or at any point on the scale of evolution, I've got questions about evolution, I don't want to bring them, but at, you know, at any point, all things have meaning, because they were all made by, so the entire creation has the stamp of its order, its purpose, its beauty, its intelligibility, its goodness. Goodness is diffusive. It's good everywhere. Think about how that view was blackened by the Reformation. All things in, all things in nature are depraved, fallen, evil. If we ever get to Melville, you're going to see probably the, and Dostoevsky, you'll see that'll all, I mean, it all makes sense, because in in Moby Dick, you see a man struggling because he believes that there's this inherent evil in the world. Imagine, imagine if you were born a Calvinist. That just it makes me shake. If you were born a Calvinist and had to struggle with the ideas you were growing up, whether you weren't one of the damned. What an awful theology. What a horrible, inhuman theology. That God would have made you damned you before you even had a say or a choice and uh, I mean it couldn't be more contrary to the Catholic position we have free will, we're inherently good, we're wounded badly, we suffer from that wound 
Okay, he goes on to say that the position that most people have taken today under the sciences is that um, there is no logos. We create our world. That there, I mean, it's, in some ways, it's an incoherent position because while they deny it, while they make, while some people make the claim that everything's a, a product of evolutionary forces, you know, uh, in which case reason itself would be undone. But they're taking this position in the spirit of a pluralism that all things should sort of be left alone to themselves. And he's showing that there are three stages to this de-Hellenizing of this logos, the presence of this logos in the world. He says in, on page four at the bottom, um, looking at the tradition of scholastic theology, the reformers thought they were confronted with a faith system totally conditioned by philosophy, that is to say an articulation of faith based on an alien system of thought. As a result, faith no longer appeared as the living historical world, word, but as one element of an overarching philosophical system. The principle sola scriptura, on, on the other hand, sought faith in its pure primordial form as originally found in the biblical world. Most Protestant reformers looked at philosophy as an evil. It was an accretion. It was something added to. They wanted to go back to a primitive Christianity of Christ moving around in the streets um, so that we get Christ immediately without the advent or the external structure of a philosophy they claim was imposed on them. So their argument is that Catholicism has historically allowed this, this structure of thinking to compromise the real living Christ. We've got to go back to that, get rid of philosophy. Well, we've seen the results of that. If you take reason away in philosophy, people do strange things with Christianity. Um, said, um, and he points to uh, <coughs> Kant and Kant's heart, um, damage because what Kant did was make man's subjective life um, the basis for everything he knows. There, there are these categories, forms within our human consciousness, and they determine what's outside of it. So we can never get to what's outside of us. We only get to its appearances. We never get to the thing itself. You do that, you take away Christ, the Logos in nature again. So he says, um, top of five, he does anchor faith exclusively in practical reason, denying access to reality as a whole. So early on, with the advent of the sciences, we separated the sciences or reason from metaphysics. Oh, we no longer have access to a metaphysical view of the world through reason. The second stage, the liberal theology of the 19th and 20th centuries ushered in a second stage in the process of dehellenization with Harnett. It took its point of departure, Pascal's distinction between the God of the philosophers and the God of Abraham. That, that old saying, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? That is, what does reason have to do with faith? As if they can't get together. Remember what I said. Wherever there's mystery, there's always more to be known. The, a modern world, a modern mind that denies order to the universe. Because lots say, it's stunning. How do you deny order to the universe when the order of the universe is so ordered? If you look at the intricate, 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 Intricacies. Intricacies. Intricacies of the human person, 
Just the body. If you look at a human cell, the complexity of it, amazing. Um, what does reason have to do with faith? Wherever there's a miracle, wherever there's something supernatural, there's always more to be known. That's our faith and that's our reason. Because for us, faith and reason are not antinomous. They're not contrary to each other. But for the modern world, they have been. So that, that adage, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? The assumption is they have nothing to do with each other. One's reason, one's faith. We should not buy into that. What Athens has to do is that it's a city created in the model of God's new Jerusalem. That every city has its archetype. Everything finally, ultimately goes back to God. That's what it has to do. And reason is not contrary to that. Reason is one of the natural ways by which we enter into those mysteries. So Hartnick, here's what's, and we're going to encounter this when we do the scripture shortly, because we're going to get the scripture. What you're going to find in biblical studies is beginning with these people. Hartnack is major. He's a major influence. He disbelieved in miracles. He explained them all away. He, he said it's foolish to believe in these things. He gave a rational explanation for every one, but denied its miraculous condition. The biblical scholarship that came out of him approached the Bible in the same way. It tried to do everything it could to um, interpret the Bible along scientific lines. So they brought in scientific presumptions as a way of explaining things and finally took away miracles. It, changed, it radically changes the nature of the Bible. Absolutely changes the nature of Christ. So the second stage that was initiated by Hartnack was another stage of undoing this Hellenic influence. On page 5, Hartnack's central idea was to return simply to the man Jesus into a simple message underneath the assertion, the accretions of theology and indeed of Hellenization. This simple message was seen as the culmination of the religious development of humanity. Jesus was said to have put an end to worship in favor of morality. Hold on to that line if you hold on to nothing else. In the end, he was presented as the father of a humanitarian moral message. He was just an amazing moral teacher. He was not God. He didn't perform miracles. If you look at things that way, you're simply misunderstanding because nothing can happen that doesn't accord with scientific premises. So is that where the, the teaching, and I heard this growing up, unfortunately, in the 80s, the teaching that the true miracle of the fishes and the loaves was that Jesus got everybody to share. Yeah, I've returned that too. I heard, I heard this explanation. Actually, that was the true miracle, was that he got everybody to share. It wasn't that he multiplied the loaves himself. It was that he got everybody to share. And that the parting of the Red Sea really wasn't yeah, the parting of the Red Sea. It was just a tidal recession. Yeah. Just to follow that up, sometime in the last year we heard somebody who said the same thing, but the elaboration of it was that everybody actually had a lunch with them or some food. And so it was possible for them to share. So it was based on the premise that everybody had to have some food. No miracle took place. No miracle took place. Yeah. I think I told you the story. It was one, you talk about pain and 
change of consciousness when you, I remember as a teacher in my first teaching, I don't want to go to names or, but I somehow I was made aware of what the um, person who was the head of the religious studies department was saying in his lectures. It stunned me, I couldn't believe my, I couldn't believe what I was hearing because he was the head of the religious studies department. Lots of priests take these positions. At a Catholic college. Mm -hmm. um, and he was denying the, um, the miraculous nature of the resurrection. And he did some other things. I couldn't believe it. This was an academic institute. I mean, this is how naive I was. I mean, you can't imagine if, I mean, when I look at myself now and compare myself to then, you know, with the arguments. I mean, I, I, I couldn't answer it. I mean, I, I asked if we could meet to talk to them because I could not believe my ears. He was clearly offended that I did that, and I couldn't believe that he'd done it. So here are these two academicians, two teachers, professors, doctors, one in religious studies, one in literature, and we, we could not have been more at odds with each other. That's the condition of our modern world. So this ability to use reason to, to, to recover the worth of that Hellenic, that Greco-Roman world is not small. <laughs> Just shocked. Him. I did not start out with that consciously in mind, but you know when we started, I, we started this group, we went back to Shakespeare and Merchant of Venice because I wanted everybody to get rooted in the present. As soon as we went through Shakespeare, we went back to Iliad, Odyssey, Aeneid, Sophocles. We went, because my whole purpose was, is Christ in that world where? Because this is a pagan world. That was the whole purpose of what we did from the beginning. I didn't have it consciously, you know, with this in mind, but. So he's saying, um, Behind the thinking lies the modern self-limitation of reason, classically expressed in Kant's critiques, but in the meantime further radicalized by the impact of the natural sciences. This modern concept of reason is based, to put it briefly, on a synthesis between Platonism, that is to live in ideas in our heads, we're removed from a concrete reality, we're not receptive to the world outside of us, we're living out ideas, because Descartes said, the most, Descartes, Kant, all of them did not distrusted the senses. They believed the senses were unreliable. To find, to find the certainty of the sciences, you had to go into the ideas in your head. So all these people are starting not in response to something in nature, hands in front of me drinking, Michael's looking puzzled at me again, <laughs> like everybody else. Um, not starting the senses, they're starting with ideas in their heads, which means they're getting blocked the external world is being blocked from them. How can you experience a miracle when your stance to the world is, I don't trust that stuff anyway? So he said it was the synthesis between Platonism, Cartesianism, and empiricism, a belief that nothing's real that doesn't come to our senses. Now look, notice the contrariety of those two positions. Plato or Cartes, Descartes says ideas are what's real. And empiricist says there's nothing real that isn't sense data. A synthesis confirmed by the success of technology. On the one hand, it presupposes the mathematical structure of matter, its intrinsic rationality, which makes it possible to understand how matter works and use it efficiently, that is to change it, to make it conform with our minds. So the whole tendency, if I can put it in a nutshell, is since Francis Bacon, 1620 roughly, somewhere in there, um, 
replacing Aristotle with what he called the new organon, the new way of approaching things. Um, man has approached nature as something to conquer, to dominate, to serve him. So um, it has to use experiments, um, but once it proves itself, it can take its conclusions to correct nature, make it serve man. Um, so the t and then with the advent of the sciences, because all sciences, this is probably the major point for me, all sciences rest on math, so they quantify, they look at the world and put it in terms of quant quantities, mathematical quantities, which means that men don't respond, in their, or men and women don't respond in their senses to c concrete things. They have these ideas in their heads that they start with, and they interpret those things in light of those ideas. So instead of learning to see the wonder of things, Mary keeps talking about gardening, you know, a number of you talked about it, the beauty of working with nature. How many of us bring that to raising of kids, our work, whatever we do, that the whole mind, the whole temper, the whole inclination of the modern mind is to live in abstractions, ideas, and move from the world. So that was the second stage of this de-Hellenizing. <clears throat> um, on page five, the second stage gives rise to two principles. First, only the kind of certainty resulting from the interplay of mathematical and empirical elements can be considered scientific. Anything that doesn't fit that is not scientific, it's not real. We call that, that was one of the faults we looked at, scientism. Scientism claims that any knowledge that, that can't be proven in scientific terms is not real. But we know that reason is larger, more plentiful, more fructifying, more free than that. Is it a healthy reason? We've got, we've, the, the major problem of the modern world is its rationality. The modern world has lost its mind. It, truly, it doesn't reason well. So reason by itself isn't going to do this, but confining reason to the narrow limits of science isn't doing reason any good. The modern world has become mad under that. I mean, truly, it's gone insane. That's one effect. A second point, which is important for our reflections, is that by its very nature, this method excludes the question of God. Can science deal with ultimate questions? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How did we get here? How did it explain evil? <clears throat> so in the modern world, we've turned into ourselves, subjectively making the world whatever we want, and anything that doesn't form a reason isn't real. So in radical ways, we have cut ourselves off from nature and God. We are estranged from nature. The increases of suicide, despair, you know, it's not an accident. I mean, that's our world. It is in so many ways enslaving and inhuman. Christ came to set us free. The world believes that we can free ourselves without him. <laughs> and we know the fruits of that all around us. So. Um, on page six, before I draw the conclusions to which all this has been leading, I must briefly refer to the third stage of dehellenization, which is now in progress. 
In light of our experience with cultural pluralism, it's often said nowadays that the synthesis with Hellenism achieved in the early church was an initial enculturation which ought not to be binding on other cultures. Just leave them as they are. The latter are said to have the right to return to the simple message of the New Testament prior to that enculturation. That is, people want to go back to Christ before philosophy entered or before anybody did anything with philosophy. Could the church have answered the early heresies? Mm. Serious question. No. Arianism, Nestorianism, Sabellianism. Look at any of the early church heresies, because people said Christ was just man, or Christ was the Father, come down in another mode, or Christ was just God. I mean, the world was full of all sorts. I mean, imagine what, what he did. I mean, there's this wonderful story by Flannery O'Connor uh, called uh, Good Man is Hard to Find. And in it, there's the misfit who can't shake free of Christ. He's haunted by him. He, he's a killer. He will kill people, but he's haunted. He said, because when Christ came into the world, he screwed everything up. I mean, imagine what, the, how do you explain a man? Live, live in the Greek-Roman world after Christ. How do you explain that? When, Christ, when Paul went to Athens, there's this unknown God, and suddenly somebody's telling you about a man who came down who was both man and God. There were all these understandings of who Christ was. Could they have answered any of them without philosophy? Could they have made an argument that would have shown how miraculous he was and how reasonable he was? It could not have. Could not have done it. We, we would be in a church still believing Christ is all God or is all man. So the, the whole point of his crucifixion, that he had to be both man and God to answer our sin, gone. I mean, imagine the possibilities of what people could have done if we had not had that. Um, this early enculturation ought not to be binding. The latter are said to have let people return to the New Testament before all this stuff happened. This thesis is not simply false, but it's coarse and lacking in precision. The New Testament was written in Greek and bears the imprint of the Greek spirit, which had already come to maturity as the Old Testament developed. True, there are elements in the evolution of the early church which do not have to be integrated into all culture. Nonetheless, the fundamental decisions made about the relationship between faith and the use of human reason are part of the faith itself. You can't take it out. How could you take out any of the things I just mentioned? The universality of man, the fact that all men are equal, the fact that Christ came to all of us, the fact that there is this ultimate good, the fact that um, all contingent things can only be explained by something that's ultimately not contingent. Is that too quick? I mean, those are the arguments I ran through earlier. Take all of those away. What do you have? The relationship between faith and the use of human reason are part of the faith itself. They are developments consonant with the nature of faith itself. On page seven at the end, he says, the pressing need of the moment is to recover this Hellenic heritage because of the way it's infused in our faith. Try to take that out of our faith and it will cripple our faith. Because our, our, here, God came down 
He brought a divine nature and submitted it to our human nature. So a divine logos took on the role of a human logos. Is there anything that he did in his arguments that he did with his disciples or people around him that didn't involve reason, a story, a rational <coughs> argument? If, if, if it weren't rational, how could people have understood him or, or turned to him? And everything he did, and on one level, is, did he confine it to human reason? No, he did not. Because most of his parables are using human reason to point to analogically something higher. But he, they would have been futile if they weren't rational. If you were talking over anybody's heads, who would have come to him? He had to appeal to their reason to make them come to him in faith. Um, so this element of rationality is essential to our faith. He says the problem, the need of our time is he says at the top of seven, to broaden our concept of reason and its application. While we rejoice in new possibilities open to humanity, we also see the dangers arising from these possibilities. We must ask ourselves how we can overcome them. We will succeed in doing so only if reason and faith come together in a new way. If we overcome the self-imposed limitations of reason to the empirically falsifiable, and if we once more disclose its vast horizons. In this sense, theology rightly belongs in the university. That is, it's a science. If you read St. Thomas's first questions in the Summa, read the first questions. In fact, I'll bring it next week. I'll post it. I'll, I'll send it. Theology is a science. As a matter of fact, it's the highest science. Why, why, here, why would it be the highest science of any science possible? It's, it's the science that all other sciences come from. And the ultimate object of that science is the one thing about which there can be no uncertainties. There is a God. He is good. That's certain. And it's on the basis of that that you can begin to make arguments. But you can make a, you can make a, a demonstrable, a demonstration. Is there anything that the saints in heaven don't know as humans? Would we question them the way we would question each other here on earth? No, because they're in the presence of God. Whatever they see, they see certainly. Can we, except for some of us in this room, um, do we have certainty? No, I mean, we struggle to be certain about some. There are some things we take as certain as our faith. I mean, those are precepts, those are, you know, but we struggle to enter into the truth and come to know it more and more clearly as we age. So we can make arguments and we can make demonstrations. But theology is a science. That's what he's arguing here. We will succeed in doing so only if faith and reason come together in a new way. If we overcome the self-imposed limitations of reason to the empirically falsifiable. If we can show that it's wrong according to reason, it doesn't exist. We once more disclose its vast horizons. Reason is this extraordinary gift we've been given as humans. In this sense, theology rightly belongs in the university and within the wide-ranging dialogues of sciences, not merely as a historical discipline and one of the human scientists, but precisely as theology, as an inquiry into the rationality of faith. What sources of rationality exist in our faith? 
They're much richer in our faith than they are in a fundamentalist, whether he's Islamic or Christian. That's not a slur of Islam. It's as much a slur of one aspect of Christianity. That fundamentalist belief that takes away the logos takes away the basis for any thinking about God. Only thus do we become capable of that genuine dialogue of cultures and religions so urgently needed today. He will go on and um, conclude it. He says at the bottom, at the very end, um, here I'm reminded of something Socrates said to Phaedo. In their earlier conversations, many false philosophical opinions had been raised. Socrates says, it would be easily understandable if someone became so annoyed at all these false notions that for the rest of his life he despised and mocked all the talk about being. Remember, God is being. I am the damn, he's being itself. What was central to both Plato and Aristotle was the notion of being. They didn't have the Old Testament, they didn't hear God saying, I am the damn, but they knew that there was being. That something that wasn't created, something that always was, is, will be, it is. They knew that, and it's on the basis of that they, they could make their arguments in other fields. That's why you've got physics and metaphysics in Aristotle, because the metaphysics looked being. Um, so here's what Socrates is saying. So if you get so annoyed by all the stupid things that are people saying, you go off and live as a hermit or a hermit. You'd have to deal with these people. You don't have to deal with being. Is that the right answer to the stupidity around us? No. We, we have to keep struggling. And I'm assuming that if we do, I mean, to whose point was it? That if we fail, we learn from them. We get better. The question is, do we have the humility to keep learning? To keep doing? I, I think I told you about this movie we just called, watched called Dog. It's about a veteran who comes home and he has, um, um, he's got a dog who's got post-traumatic stress. Traumatic stress syndrome, that war. The dog is showing the effects that soldiers often come home with. And the dog lost its master and the soldier is told to take this dog to the master's funeral and then put the dog down. So the whole story is about, this is a veteran coming home from the war. It's a tender comic funny story. It's, um, there's not an event that takes place in that movie in which this veteran doesn't encounter the stupidity of our world. I mean, it's just comic. You, you have to laugh at it because it's so... You know, he, he's, this is the world he fought for. There's nothing that he encounters that isn't just absolutely <laughs> mind-boggling dumb. That's part of the beauty of the comedy. You know, that, but he takes this dog to the man's funeral. And I'm not going to tell you what happened. You have to watch that movie. It's called Dog. So when we encounter resistance or remember what happened to the disciples in the temple, the priest put them out, said you were told not to do this again. It was at that moment that they took a joy. So we're asked to always be glad and grateful for what we have, to take that to everything we do, even if we're in the midst of a fight, because the ultimate source of that fight, the reason for it is Christ. So he gives this line from Socrates. Um, 
The West has long been endangered by this aversion to the questions which underlie its rationality and can only suffer great harm thereby. The courage to engage the whole breadth of reason and not the denial of its grandeur. I'm going to make this as a sort of bald assertion. I'm going to say, remember what I've been claiming all along. The greatest sources of rationality in our world is called orthodoxy. It's the center of our church. Wherever we resist that, wherever we're going against it, we're going against something in our own nature. That's the deposit, the great treasury of our past. Um, the challenge for us today is our world is an insane world. It is just, it's lost its head. Can we struggle to bring that inheritance, that heritage, to what we do and still keep our heads, to be cheerful, to be glad? Um, Connie said she and her sister get heated sometimes, I'm sure. I can't imagine myself not getting heated if, you know, if I'm in a... But can we still do this? Take it seriously. It's, it's worth fighting for because that's the basis of our life. The courage to engage the whole breadth of reason and not the denial of its grandeur. This is the program with which a theology grounded in biblical faith enters into the debates of our time. Not to act reasonably, not to act with logos, is contrary to the nature of God. Our great call is to make our emotions ordinate, to bring them in line with the logos. Uh, remember the Oprah, the, one of the scenes we opened with where Hopkins, just to sort of make this concrete, he could not have written this line if he did not understand this in the depth of his heart. Ah, so we can, so remember, in the work that we've done together, anger, according to the classical mind, is not a vice. Anger is not a vice. The, the two extremes with which we're dealing with are always there. Virtue means the mean, finding that mean for any situation, whether it's money or honor or courage or whatever it is. Learning to become virtuous. But to do that means bringing ourselves in line with law, whatever that is. I mean, for us it would be God's law. <clears throat> the, the, the two possible extremes for dealing with a situation where we're faced with a danger or threat is um, rage um, or running away. The mean is courage. Okay? Can we have courage without making our emotions good? Because the, the tendency will be to, to slip into pity, to just feel sorry, or to blow up. The harder thing is to struggle, to bring our emotions under control with reason and humility, and gratitude, right, and glad thankfulness, those things, okay? Um, could Hopkins have written this line if he didn't know that in, in the depths of his heart? Ah, touched in your bower of bone, are you? Turn for an exquisite smart, have you? Make words break for me here all alone, do you? Remember, he knows. I mean, the reason he can be glad here, he says it in the, one of the stanzas I read. He's at home in the comfort of a chair. He's dealing with nuns, and the fact that he's dealing with them excites this deep emotion, the sympathy for them, but he's also glad he's... You know, he's in the cupboard, so how's he going to deal with this? He's not there suffering with them. Ah, touching your bower of bone, are you turned for an exquisite smart, have you? 
Make words break for me here all alone, do you, mother of being in me, heart. Go unteachably after evil, but uttering truth. We can speak the truth and still miss it in our heart. I'm trusting everybody's known that. We can be bringing the truth to somebody in our heart and still not be where it should be. It's easy to speak the truth, living it in our wills, um, but uttering truth, why tears? Is it tears such a melting, a madrigal start? Never eldering revel in river of youth. What can it be, this glee, the good you have there of your own? In the comfort of his study, he's identifying with the nuns and also wondering where he is with Christ at that moment. So, let me stop. Any, any questions about um, Regensburg or what? It's a pretty straightforward argument. He's saying that we've lost a sense of the Logos and without it we have no way of... We are either in, in, a, in a condition of subjectivism, totally in our own worlds, or an empirical world where we think that whatever data we get from our senses is all there is, there's no more. So we've lost a sense of the connectedness between our world and some other larger thing, the ultimate question. So that's the struggle of our age. So it's a, to me, it, it, it's, it, it piggybacks on Fide and Ratio. The two are so linked. They're, they're, both of them are, are appealing to recover reason, the need for reason with our faith to strengthen it. So we grow in both of them. The anyway, so somebody had some, some I was just going to say the problem is is that since he gave this speech I feel like you know the university has moved even farther away faster from reason than what it was when he gave the speech yeah. and that's just It's true because what you I think it's true because what you're describing really can be described in terms of the trajectory of movement and what, he was, what Pope John was responding to, what, Greg, what um, Benedict was responding to, was a movement of history. Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis is going to take it up <clears throat> next. He's going to deal with it directly, and G.K. Chester is going to deal with it. It's our world. And I think you're right, it's gotten worse, not better. Does that mean... We don't give up hope. Does that mean we should be discouraged or not continue this fight? Nope. No. Means we have a lot of work to do. Another thing I think is he did this in Germany, and from what I hear, the German church is moving farther and farther yeah. away. Reagan, or Benedict, right. 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 Well, the German church has been, I mean, Germany's been an unusual state from the, if you look at European history, one of the things you notice is that the whole northern part of Europe didn't fully absorb. That, that Greco-Roman world. It stayed outside of it. So what you see under, um, what's his name, the Chancellor, Bismarck, you know, and forward through Hitler and, and, and Hartnett, you know, who's a, a German theologian, is, I mean, it's been true that the, that the Germany's estate is, has been, in one sense, Protestant, liberal, um, it's why, this is really amazing. Benedict was born in Germany. I didn't go into his life, but he was born in Germany. His father hated uh, um, Hitler. He was forced into those youth armies for the Germans because he was expected to 
become a soldier. He, he um, deserted, left, and by that time the Allied forces had come in and conquered Germany, so he could return. But he, he, he lived there at a time when uh, Hitler was in power and doing what he was doing. So the, 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 that fact just makes makes me admire him more. I mean, his courage, he, he, he really got it. By the Catholic, or lots of Catholics, liberal Catholics, did not like this. The Islamic world did not like it for sure. Fundamentalist world did not like it. Part of the Christian world came down on him. He was just very, very brave to do. And if you listen to his tone, it's so it's so reasonable. You know, it's so, it's so clear. Um, huh? It's so clear. Yeah. Like there's a clarity of thinking there. It's 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 not only a clarity, but just a real charity, a spirit of. You know, when he, when he objects to the emperor's tone, you know, he's just, um, just had a, a, a great generous heart and a really gifted mind. Does somebody else have a hand or something? Michelle, somebody? Did somebody, I thought somebody, no? No questions? I don't believe that. I wanted to comment earlier on how my mom was talking about like with colleges, how it's gotten worse, where there's even more of a disconnect. And like you're saying, it's just a trajectory. It's just the snowballing that's yeah. continuing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as with modernism and yeah. everything else. We're going to expect a lot of you because you've got time ahead of you that most of us here don't have. So your hands are going to be full. We're putting, I don't want you to feel weighted down here, but we're putting a lot on you right now. <laughs> what are we reading next week? So two weeks we don't meet. Oh, next two, two weeks we take a break for two weeks. Next Tuesday no meeting, and then after that, when we come back, we're doing C.S. Lewis's abolition. You're going to find yourself. It's going to be very. It's not a priest or a pope talking. It's a. It's a teacher, but he's talking as one of the great apologists of the 20th century. It's just a, a reasoned argument. It's it's in the context of education because you're going to look it up some writings of teachers who are presenting a view that Lewis is going to say makes no sense at all. And yet it's a popular view. Um, I think you'll enjoy the argument. It's clear, it's short, it's very brief. My suggestion is to all of you, read um, Abolition of Man over break. It's very short. Get started on orthodoxy, because orthodoxy is going to ask a lot of you. It, it's a journalist. I, I, I don't think there's anybody in the 20th century who could speak so easily to an ordinary audience of you know just citizens in a city who's a journalist. But I also don't think there was a more profound man in the 20th century. C.S. Lewis said of him, he's the, how do you put it, he's the, So when's the next meeting? So are we skipping one Tuesday or two Tuesdays? Two Tuesdays. That's what I thought. We won't meet for two weeks. We'll meet so, in the third week. So, so we're not here next week, or the week which is the, the 31st, and the next week is the 7th, so we're right. here the 14th. 14th. Whatever that yeah. Tuesday is, yeah. Next meeting. Lewis, C.S. Lewis said he was the most, not the most sensible, but... I don't know what it is. Yeah, just cool. I got it. Because next week is just... Before we do it, any comments? It's the 14th. 14th. It's the 14th. June 14th. Katie, David, Melody. Melody, I don't believe you don't have questions or comments. Yeah, good. The volunteerism that 
I didn't understand the difference. So what I understood it to be is God can choose to be evil if he wants to be. That, uh, that's his choice. But then the other one, the, the monk that I, I don't remember his name, was saying God can choose to be good or evil, but since he chose to be good, he's going to remain good? No. Or am I just totally missing them? Well, you're not totally missing them. That's, um, let me try to cut through this. Voluntarism simply means the will is made higher than reason. So whatever anybody will, that's true for us as human beings. So uh, whatever any one of us wills, uh, will be. Um, let me put it on human terms, because I, I, I'm pretty sure most of us have had experiences where we're pretty willful in our arguments with each other. We can get willful. And we know how unproductive they are. I mean, just, but it's, placing our, it's making our will greater than reason. And they're claiming that quality for God. So they're saying that his will is who he is. That's a voluntarist position. The Orthodox or Catholic or classic position is that God is the source of wisdom and you can't separate his wisdom from his will. So if somebody, if, if somebody who's Islamic says God's will is right whatever he does, if God says, um, what was his example? Uh, turn away from uh, idolatry one moment, and another he says, go ahead and be idolatrous. That, that an Islam would follow them because in their understanding, whatever he wills would be. A Christian believes that that's not so, not just because of Christ, but even because of the Old Testament. Because when God came down, he said, here are my laws, do these. So there's an implicit understanding in Christianity and Judaism that there is a way, a law, a way. Christ made that clear when he went to a cross because it was his effort to answer an injustice against God that man couldn't answer himself. So in one sense, he's affirming a just order, a just God. Man broke that order when he disobeyed God. And man couldn't give satisfaction for that sin. Somebody needs a man and God have to do it. I hope that's clear, because that's been fundamental to everything we're doing. So there's a just order, a right order, a way. We would call that um, realism. In the philosophic tradition, too, voluntarism would be opposed to realism. But realism rests on um, the belief that God's reason and will can't be separated. That God. God can't go against his own reason, not just his will. God is bound to goodness. He can't just change his will arbitrarily. He is goodness, that goodness is eternal. He can't turn against it. He can't go outside it. He is being itself uncreated, unchanging. Say again, John. Melody, did that, did that answer your question? Yes, very much so, thank you. I'm trying to put together, you know, in Islam, um, a lot of times you'll hear if somebody has misfortune, well, we're not going to help them. It's God's will that they have misfortune. 
just wanted to make sure y'all were gonna be okay walking to the car. Right? Oh, pardon me. But I was trying to get you to. Goodness gracious. That's amazing, actually. That sounds. How many minutes do we like? I think it's just a line. Like, and as soon as it gets past us. I think, I think we're, I'm just going to leave it like, Mary, wait, the, Suzanne's going to get an umbrella. Oh, okay. You are a catechist? You are a catechist? I was, yes, I worked in the school for a while. Yeah, good for you. Michael, thank you. Okay. Well, then we'll see you in three weeks. Yes.